Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to join us here today for this pre-performance event. It's not a talk, it's a round table. It's an extravaganza on Strauss's opera Zalame. Um, I'm Dr. Flora Wilson. I'm a lecturer in music at King's College London, just down the road, and I'm an opera scholar there. Um, and I'm going to be hosting this evening's event, essentially trying to uh, uh, operate as a traffic warden as we discuss this most contentious of operas. I'll introduce the good people sat next to me in just a moment. But I wanted to start by saying just a few things about Salome. Salome is one of opera's archetypal femme fatale. She's one of her, its most controversial figures in all sorts of ways. So since the premiere of this opera over 100 years ago in 1905 in Dresden, both the character and her opera have been continuing to divide opinion in audiences and critics. Strauss was actually the chief conductor at the Berlin Court Opera when he wrote Zalame, and his boss was Kaiser Wilhelm II as a result. Now, Kaiser Wilhelm II said, I like this Strauss fellow, but Zalame will do him a lot of damage. Strauss was able to reply quite soon afterwards that that damage enabled him to build his house at Garmisch, where he lived for the rest of his life. This opera, Zalame, was no less really than a, the turning point in his career, in his whole fortunes as a composer. And specifically, it kick-started a new phase of his life where he was an opera composer. The kind of the famous works that he is best known for, aside from Salome, Electra, Rosenkavalier, Ariadne, Naxos, they were all still to come at this point. So Salome really did kickstart that. Strauss adapted this, uh, the libretto himself from a German translation of the play by Oscar Wilde, which he'd seen in Berlin in 1902. He cut out huge amounts of Wilde's dialogue, about half of it, in fact, and um, ended up with a very concentrated drama in a single act. His friend, Roland Roland, the French writer, called it a dramatic crescendo from beginning to end. We've got three principal characters in this piece. The soprano, Zalome, her stepfather, King Herod, who's sung by a tenor, and Jochanan, otherwise known as John the Baptist, and we'll be coming back to him shortly, uh, who's a baritone, the prophet, who's imprisoned in Herod's palace, and who we hear offstage before we actually see him. Jochanan speaks out against the incest of Salome's mother, Herodias, whose first husband was Herod's brother. I hope you've got that. Meanwhile, Herod becomes obsessed with Salome, and Salome becomes obsessed with Jochanan. This whole opera, in fact, is fixated on obsession and on its power. So, here with me to unpick some of Salome's many threads and to unveil more about what you're about to see in this evening's performance is our panel of Salome experts. So please welcome Dr. Daffith Daniel, lecturer in theology from the University of Oxford. We've got Francesca Tennant, ENO staff director for Salome, and over at the piano, Richard Pearson, who's ENO music staff, also working on Salome. So please welcome them now. So where else to begin talking about this opera but about this ultimately compelling central character, Zalame? I wonder, Davis, can we start off with you? We want to talk about who this figure actually is. So, I mean, there's so many Zalame figures in the late 19th century. There's Gustave Moreau, the painter, painted so many pictures of her. Riesmann's Arabeau against nature um, describes Zalame as the symbolic deity of lechery the goddess of immortal hysteria. Uh, there were short stories, there were other operas. There was, of course, Oscar Wilde's Salome. But 
where does she actually come from? Mm. Well, Salome, um, I mean, the story of Salome is obviously very famous, we all sort of know it, but she, she doesn't actually, uh, she's not named in the, in the Bible. So she, her, her character appears in the New Testament, but only in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, and she just appears there as Herodias's daughter. Um, so we get the name Salome from uh, ancient history, from Josephus. And this points to the fact that, you know, the opera we're going to see really plunges us into this world of uh, first century Palestine. We've got historical figures and biblical figures. And so, as we've just heard, uh, we've got Salome's part of the Herod family. And the Herods uh, were a, a, a Jewish family, but were uh, disliked by their contemporary Jews at the time. And this was because they ruled over the Jews uh, and that area of uh, the Roman Empire as vassals of the Romans. So that caused a lot of dislike, and also they were used of being unrighteous. And so this is why they come into conflict uh, with John the Baptist, who's Jaconine. Um, John the Baptist represented, so far as Antipas was concerned, um, a, a two, two main threats. So one was the fact, was a political threat. So he um, is gathering a lot of followers, a lot of, a lot of supporters, a lot of disciples. Um, and of course, you know, if you're a um, dictator, you don't really like people to have a lot of, lot of supporters. That's always rather, uh, rather worrying. He's also talking about his figure, uh, the Son of Man, uh, the Messiah, which in uh, the Christian tradition becomes uh, Christ. But there are obviously a number of uh, views of the, the Messiah in ancient Judaism, um, all of which seem to suggest it was someone who would overthrow earthly rulers. So that's the political threat. The, 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 the focus of the biblical story, though, is more to do with the the, the incestuousness. So we've got the fact uh, that uh, Herodias was previously married to a brother. So uh, there's lots of Herods in the New Testament. So, you know, there's Herod the Great. He's a, another famous one. He's the one who uh, went to, to massacre the innocents. Herod Antipas is his son. He's the one who sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate and in Acts uh, crucifies um, disciples, these sorts of things. And so, Herod Antipas is our Herod. In he's Bible, our Herod, yeah, he's yes. our Herod. But he's just called Herod in, 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 the, in the New Testament to add even more uh, confusion to it. But just to, just to so I could be more on the incestuousness, so uh, they, that was very controversial to have married your, your, you know, your brother's wife. Um, but they were, they were, the Herods were sort of um, ancient Habsburgs, right? They, they wanted to keep it in the family. So if you think of Salome, Salome is uh, Antipas's stepdaughter, uh, but she's also his half-niece, his half-grandniece, and his sister-in-law. So that was how close, uh, how close they were. And so in the theological tradition, you have uh, all three figures being criticised, um, they, all three of them represent the fact that uh, there are people who choose uh, worldly power and pleasure over righteousness, over religious truth, hence why they're killing John the Baptist. But it is true that uh, Salome and Herodias come in for particular criticism. So Antipas, in the st biblical story, wants to listen to John the Baptist. He reluctantly kills him out of fear, but he sort of, you know, mainly because of the conspiracy between Herodias and Salome. So they sort of tempt um, Antipas into his, into his action. And so it, it's part of this um, idea of sort of misogynistic and allegorical use of biblical female figures. So think of Eve and Delilah and these sorts of people. They, they represent sort of malign forces that tempt human beings idealised as the rational man away from the, the path of righteousness. That's fascinating. I mean, Francesca, who does, who does Salome become in this opera, uh, in this production that we're going to see tonight? Well, she's, I mean, she's a very different person from start to finish. I mean, it's, it's quite a big, uh, she, she goes through a huge transformation, so it's a, it's a very big question. I mean, I think uh, at the start, she's very much a teenager. She's a young girl. She's uh, very confused and frustrated at everybody staring at her the whole time and obsessing about her. Um, 
she, yeah. It's an opera full of looking, isn't it? And a it production is. especially full of glances. And yeah. she's very much the focus of the gaze, isn't she? Absolutely, of, of almost everyone there. And it, it, I think there's a sense that she wants to try and escape from it somehow. Um, yeah, and she's, she's navigating a world where she has limited power. Um, she doesn't have a lot of options. And I, I think it's a, something to think about generally as well. She, she's hugely emotionally respons responsive. She feels things very extremely, which you know, often gets associated with being young and a teenager and, or an adolescent. But the, the violence of her emotions is particularly important and defining, I would say. Of yeah, and I mean, this is then, this is where I suppose the music comes in, doesn't it, Rich? And I mean, what does Zalame actually, what does she sound like in this opera for, for those who haven't heard it before? Well, it's actually quite difficult to pin down what she sounds like in Strauss's musical world. Um, indeed, the sound world of the whole opera is one of the most richly varied in all opera, I would say. Strauss employs, employs a huge orchestra, some 80 players, with some quite unusual instruments, contrabassoon, harmonium, hecklephone, which is a sort of bass oboe. Looks and sounds extraordinary. You do not hear often, no. Um, there's, um, and there's a celeste, which is fairly unusual. Um, but the sheer variety of orchestral textures and timbres um, and the mixture of extremes of violence and beauty in the orchestral score make it an endlessly fascinating score. As for Zalame herself, her music um, goes from extremes of beauty to violence to naive excitement to horror, um, and often very abruptly, abrupt mood swings, just like a teenager. Well, so. exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's most striking about this opera, isn't it? It's the way that the orchestra sort of responds to what's going on on stage a lot of the time. So those kind of, as, as you were saying, Francesca, the kind of teenage aspects of Salome, and I think she was intended to be about 16. Um, we hear that in the music, in this sort of violent swinging between, between one thing and another. I mean... The orchestration is actually is fascinating. I mean, we hear the first thing you'll hear is a clarinet, this sort of sinuous clarinet line. And the whole score, I think, for Strauss is sort of part exoticism. It's all, she's this sort of exotic woman and it's, it's very exciting and sort of possibly a bit oriental. And then the other half of it is this Viennese sound world, the kind of the waltz keeps lurking in the background and keeps kind of occasionally breaks through like a sort of trashy night out in Vienna around 1900. Um, it's sort of, it's an extraordinary mix and these things are constantly held in tension in the score. Um, I sort of think there is something um, about this score that has shocked, in fact, about the opera as a whole, that's shocked from its very beginnings, isn't there? I mean, there were censorship problems with the premiere. Um, it was actually banned in Vienna on the basis of religious and moral reasons. Um, in Berlin, one of its first critics called it the most disgusting thing ever to be shown on stage. Um, that was specifically the final scene. You'll have to judge that yourself tonight. Um, Roman Rand, again, his, uh, Strauss's friend, saw Salome and called Strauss the genius of bad taste. Now, if your friends say that about you, uh, sort of one hates the thing what the critics were saying. Um, but I think the shock factor was already there. It wasn't that Strauss needed to activate it, was it? I mean, 
Davis, again, I mean, tell us about where Oscar Wilde's play comes into this. Yeah, well, I mean, Oscar Wilde's play is, is controversial. That was also banned, so it wasn't allowed to be performed in England because uh, the Lord Chamberlain invoked uh, an old law uh, forbidding uh, the portrayal of uh, biblical characters on the stage. Um, so it wasn't actually performed in England until 1931 publicly. Um, the other uh, aspect of the controversy is that uh, when the play was first performed, it was, I think, 1896 in France, and this is when Wilde was already in Reading Jail. So it was in prison, so that sort of adds a, a little bit of controversy. And the, the other thing that Wilde does, though, is really, really focuses in on the controversial aspects of the original biblical story. So I mean, you have a very... Um, it's, it's meant to be shocking when, you, when it was read at the time. So you've got, um, you know, a young girl, aged, yeah, sort of 16, teenager, uh, sort of 19, 19. Um, she's, she's performing a, a provocative dance, at the, you know, in front of her incestuous uh, family at the request of her lustful stepfather, and then she wants a, a severed head in, in return. So. Uh, Wilde is sort of, you know, asking what are the motivations uh, for this behaviour, and then also what, what does she want to do with the, the head uh, once she's got it? You know, that's what she's exploring. And in exploring those questions, what Wilde does is um, sort, of sort of denies and helps us to sort of push up against conventional dualities that we use to um, interpret the world, you know, art pieces of art and morality, religion, these sorts of things. So if you think of uh, dualities of uh, good and evil and holy and profane, right, Ho human and divine, these things that we pretend are, are polar opposites. And for Wilde, he's pointing towards the fact that they're, they're all mixed together in existence. You know, they're all there together in, in what he calls the world of, of, of beauty and sorrow. Uh, and so what Wilde does is, in his terms, is make uh, Salome uh, Christ-like. So he's, he writes uh, De Profundis, uh, which is his letter, you know, his love letter to his, his former lover, in a sense, some sort of, sort of love lover, um, uh, in which he describes Christ as someone, so the son of man, you know, what Yakinai is talking about, as someone who embodies all of the elemental colours of life in, his, in himself. So ecstasy, love, uh, beauty, passion, all of these things are pushed together into that one figure. And he's also suggesting that Salome is that same figure. Um, so we've got um, a, a young girl, nascent, uh, personality, young selfhood. She's discovering herself, finding her own individuality, her sexuality, all these sorts of things. And through that also becoming aware of these uh, contradictory seeming forces, vital forces that make up human existence. And then she's frustrated uh, from making them intelligible to herself by three other figures who are uh, deficient in their individuality and so their humanness. So you've got uh, Yakinine, uh, John the Baptist, He's someone, so he's in, he's in a cave at the beginning with Antipas has put him there, but also that cave is slightly of his own making. So he's cut himself off from his physicality, his bodiliness, his sexuality. And so Strauss, that would have appealed to Strauss, that sort of criticism, uh, you know, because he'd already done his version of Nietzsche's Das Zarathustra, critical of the, the religious extremist. Um, if you take Herodias, uh, Salome's mother, she is a sort of uh, ancient-day uh, Richard Dawkins, right? So she's a materialist. So you'll see that in, in, in the opera, people are talking about the way the moon looks and the angel of death, you know, the wings and everywhere, and she just says, well, the moon, moon is just the moon, right? She's not interested in these spiritual dimensions to human life. And by denying them then sort of seems to make them more confusing as Salome experiences them. And then lastly, of course, you've got Antipas, uh, the great hedonist, a nihilist, very, very well represented tonight in, in, in those terms. And he doesn't really seem to have any individuality at all, right? no sort of personhood. Um, he, in the play, much more, but you'll see it in the opera as well, that he, he forgets things a lot. And it's not just because he's, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I was going to say off his face, but, you know, really, uh, really drunk. Uh, it's, it's also because he doesn't actually have uh, his own personality. He just lives in outward things. He's purely passive. So his sexualised gaze at Salome is all he lives through. So through all those, those, 
aspects, the, creating the character of Salome, these three other characters, uh, Wilde undermines that, that duality and points then to the fact that what we might think is glorious about human life, its spirituality, its effervescence, its purity, right? These aren't otherworldly things, they're thisworldly things. And so spirituality is always uh, essentially uh, viscid and muddy, and we just have to live through this confusion ourselves. So, I mean, in that sense, this really Wilde's play has... Um, Strauss's opera mm. both belong in this kind of twin uh, artistic movements at the end of the 19th century of um, sort of degeneration, uh, degeneration of decadence on the one mm. hand and of expressionism, the kind of start of the 20th century on the other, of kind mm. of pushing towards emotional extremes in mm. art um, and in sort of critiquing what was an ideal form of expression right. Uh, earlier in the 19th century. I mean, I think for Strauss, a lot of that was about Wagner. Yeah. Um, specifically, it was sort of pushing back against the kind of musical idealism that Wagner was interested in. And he was trying to find his own response, his own way of writing music, way of writing opera mm. in the wake of Wagner. Yeah. I mean, Richard, how does, how does Strauss actually communicate this kind of extremity in his score? Well, I can just give you a couple of examples of the extremes of, of beauty and violence. Um, for example, there's a, a phrase of great sensuous beauty when Zalame is singing to Yokanan, your flesh is white as the snow on the hills of Judea, to this accompaniment. And so on. And this music reappears later on in, in the famous dance in a sort of lush, waltz-like uh, form. And so on. It's, it's music which could almost have been written by Johann Strauss, actually. Um, so we've got this sort of lush, sensuous sound world, but then suddenly, uh, for example, when uh, Yokanan rejects one of Zalame's advances. She sings, Your flesh is horrible, to this music. <laughs> suddenly, all angular, all dissonant harmonies. It's suddenly completely different. And so he keeps going from one extreme to another. Um, similarly, when we hear one of the Nazarenes at Herod's court talking about Jesus, there's music of almost uh, hymn-like beauty. contrast, right near the beginning of the opera, we hear a commotion off stage um, and this music in the orchestra. And one of the soldiers says, to, explains to the other, oh, that's just the Jews arguing about their religion. And the music lurches from these sudden violent things to almost saccharine beauty. Um, and, well, that's throughout the score. Exactly. I mean, I think Strauss played some of his score to his father before the premiere. His father actually died three weeks before the premiere of this opera. Uh, and before he did, Strauss played this to him. And the father's response was, oh, God, what nervous music. It's like having your trousers full of Maybugs. Um, which I think 
What we've just heard may give you some sense of why that there are these moments of extraordinary beauty and sort of relaxation in the score, but they never last very long. You never know what's coming around the corner. It's, it's so neurotic. So, Francesca, the question is, can this opera, does it still shock today, do you think? Um, yes, I, th I think it still does. I, I mean, what is shocking about it? now compared to then perhaps a few things have changed slightly i think there are core things that were shocking are shocking and will be shocking um i mean for example the cultural context i mean now we're through in a time talking about a lot of abuse of power and um revealing patriarchal structures which um, yeah, they're currently there's a huge shift going on in that, and I think people probably find some aspects of it less shocking because they're so aware of that at the moment. I mean, a, a young woman um, seducing her stepfather, you know, the sexualization of young women, which I think does get explored in the production, perhaps doesn't seem so shocking, which maybe in the future hopefully will seem very shocking. Mm. Um, you know, whereas the aspects, um, the exploration of female desire, perhaps at the time was more shocking than it is now, um, but at the very core, there's the extremity of Salome's feelings and uh, of uh, everyone's obsession with her, but also with Yokana and, and the head and what she. You know, she, she gets offered half a kingdom and huge riches, and she decides that she doesn't want that. She wants the severed head of this man, and she wants to kiss it. And I, I can't see that not being shocking for a very long time. No, I mean, I mean Davis, I mean, you can, you're in a much better position than me to give a kind of sense of the, the longer back history of that. I mean, has yeah. Salome always shocked as a figure? Yes, Salome is always always shocked, um, and that that was part of her, her purpose in being there was to raise uh, many of these these issues about uh, going back to the uh, the way that female female figures are used as these allegorical and misogynistic sense. Um, Part feeding into that, if we take uh, the way that the story was developed even in the early church, so we've got uh, St. Jerome in the 4th century, um, and Jerome adds, adds a feature to the story, uh, which is that after... Um, uh, Herodias, uh, Salome gets the head and uh, she's, uh, she's sort of hands it to her mother and her mother uh, pulls out the tongue and then sticks a, sticks a needle through it. Um, and this, again, is using that allegorical sense to say, well, they, they're denying uh, religious truth. You know, this is why they're behaving in that sort of way. Uh, but it also it speaks to, speaks to um, these different points of, of climax uh, that come about throughout it. We have this, this severed head. Uh, I mean, well, I... I always think of the story of Salome, which is something which is, is, is grotesque, but deeply sad, right? And that, that really comes out tonight, I think, as well. It's meant to be a, a sad story. And so we've got, uh, in Wilde's play, the fact that um, Salome has, has this head, um, and she's, and you'll, you'll see this as well tonight, but she's, she's trying to coax it into some sort of action. So she's trying to get this head to, to look at her again, as she tried to get Yakinine to look at her earlier in the play, and obviously it still refuses to do, because uh, in this case it's deceased. But, um, through this, through this element of frustration, she comes to this uh, realization, as she puts it, that uh, that love is love is greater than death. So that's her great realization, uh, which itself is 
uh, part of the, um, her being Christ-like for Wilde. So in De Profundis, she, uh, uh, Wilde had described, described Christ as someone who appreciated that uh, love uh, was greater than, than hate. Right? So you come to this, uh, this moment of realisation. And so uh, when, when Salome comes to this point, she's uh, sort of transcending the limits uh, that have been placed around her by, her, by these three other figures, Herodias, Jaconine, and Antipas. So um, if you think of uh, what it means to appreciate love, it means that you become, again, as Wilde would have it for someone like Christ, you become an individualist. But an individualist is someone who recognises that every individual is important, right? They're precious, that they contain divine spirit, and it's a sad thing if, if an individual goes out of existence. You also, if you think about love, you start to think about the connections between individuals, right? Herodias as a materialist wouldn't be particularly concerned if someone died, right? So individual death is just a fact of life. It's a mechanistic thing. Um, Antipas, not concerned about uh, death. In fact, the hedonists, it probably could be a source of pleasure, right? As long as you're, you're not dying, uh, you, you know, if you cause someone else's death, that might be a good thing. Jaconine as well. Um, he is someone who, uh, as a religious extremist for people like Strauss and, and Wilde, might also value death as this opportunity, right? It's, it becomes a, a window to another world, which is pure spirit. So death might be valued. So she's got beyond all of those, all of those limitations. And um, what you'll see tonight really well represented, I'd say, is something which is in Wilde's play as well, is, is the way that Jaconine and Slome and other figures as well are described in the same terms. So the same imagery is attached to them. And the same imagery is also attached to the moon. So it's silver and virgin and these sorts of things. And this, this draws out, going back to uh, Wagner and influences that happen. Uh, so Schopenhauer's big influence uh, on Wagner. Um, Schopenhauer had this view that um, something called the principle of individuation. So our belief that we're all separal, separate, atomized individuals is the cause of suffering. We've got to think of the fact that everything in existence is just manifestations of a different, uh, one single will to live. And once we come to that realization, we realize our connectedness. And Salome gets to that point where she realizes it through her uh, sort of revelation on love. So, I mean, these are, as you'll be beginning to realise, if you didn't realise already, vast philosophical themes that kind of underpin this, this entire opera. So, I mean, the question is how you go about putting together a production on stage. Um, what we'll be seeing tonight is a new production for ENO by the Australian director, Adina Jacobs. And in true Zalame style, in the, the week or so that it's been on the stage so far, it's produced, uh, produced lots of lively debate, as Salome's always should. Um, I was lucky enough to see it on its opening night and thought it was absolutely fascinating and extremely thought-provoking. Francesca, you're, you're our inside person here. Um, can you give us some sense of Adina Jacobs' thinking behind the production, how its kind of symbolism works? Yeah, I can. I don't want to spoil too much. But um, so it's definitely not an attempt at realism or naturalism. It's not a domestic tragedy that she's tried to put on stage. It's more of um, a dream-like journey through Salome's mind. Uh, it's rife with symbolism, as is the text uh, and the music, and a lot of that is very deliberately ambiguous. A lot of it is left open for different interpretation and understanding. Um, some of the symbols uh, for example, there's, there's something in the first two scenes that you see on stage, which um, uh, I don't want to say too much, but it, 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 they talk about the moon a lot, and it could be 
uh, seen as representative of the moon and it returns, the same object returns in scene four as something completely different with a, with a very different weight attached to it. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's also a huge amount of symbolism around femininity and a huge subverting of, I think, a lot of the symbolism throughout. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, is the, is the house currently lit up in hot pink from outside? So Did not, we, we came no. in too early to be able to see, but I think it probably is, um, has been for the past few performances at least. I wonder, there's going to be a lot of pink in this production. I wonder whether I can push you slightly on it, Francesca. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what's it about? Well, I think it, it is meant to be uh, a bit of a provocation for you to think about femininity. I mean, it, it, I mean, it is... As I mentioned, with a lot of the symbolism, it's, a, it's many different things. And it shifts from when you first see it. And actually, the, the colour is a, is a big thing in the production. We, we start in darkness, and we go on this explosion of light and colour throughout. And uh, the, I, the hues of the pink change as well. And it, I mean, it's linked to blood. Um, which is also linked to femininity. It's, um, yeah, I mean, Salome starts at the beginning almost having rejected her femininity as the source of much of her distress from everyone staring and obsessing over her. And I think as it bleeds out, it takes over in a very interesting way. Yeah, yeah, thank you. The interesting thing about this, you see, is that Strauss actually described this opera as being all purple and violet. So I don't know whether Adina Jacobs realised that or not, but it, it fits incredibly yeah. well with his own, with the composer's own um, sense of how this was going to work. Yeah. I mean, can I ask you just one more thing about how to approach the Dance of the Seven Veils is probably the one bit of Salome that everybody who knows about the opera at all has heard of. Mm. And I wonder... How is that approached here? I mean, how do you deal with this moment where a soprano is expected to dance, or maybe doesn't dance, but not dancing would also be a statement? Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a big thing. There's a lot of expectation which is put on it as an event that happens. Um, it's also structurally such a big part. You know, there's a huge build-up to it, and then it, an explosion after it. You know, it's... A lot of people still have very strong ideas about what it should be and what they want to see in it. And I think she's dealt with that very cleverly. Um, you can't escape from its narrative purpose. It is, uh, it is a young woman using her objectification to seduce her stepfather to get what she wants. So there is an uncomfortable element of that. Um, and. I think what she, what's done quite well in the production is that there's a there's almost a double layer when you uh, watch it. You've got Herod watching with the expectation of Salome, and you've also got the audience with that double layer of expectation. And she's taken that away, and I think made it mm. quite clear that you know, in many ways, a lot of people are watching, you know, and expecting titillation from it, um, and that is problematic. Uh, and I think she doesn't shy away from shining a light on that. 
Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think it is, it's an unavoidably uncomfortable moment for the audience, really, the point at which you notice that you too are looking and you can't really avoid looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, it is you are being forced to think about what that means in a really interesting way. Um, Richard, I mean, we've talked about some of the dramatic challenges that this opera br um, brings, but what are the kind of musical challenges? Well, these are simply very demanding roles to sing, obviously, particularly Zalame herself. Um, you need a voice of Wagnerian power to get over this huge orchestra, but it also needs uh, incredible agility and lightness. It's very wordy at, at some points, and so the voice does need to be agile. And ideally, as, we, as we've just been talk, talking about, um, you, ne you need to look like a teenager and do a seductive dance. I mean, Strauss, so, <laughs> Strauss said that he, um, his ideal Zalame was a 16-year-old with the voice of Isolde. Exactly, um, yes. Which, so, if you've ever seen Tristan and Isolde, you'll know that most Isoldes don't look like Salome or a 16-year-old. <laughs> so, yeah, they're very demanding roles. And some of the pitches are just very difficult to find. Just to give you one tiny example, again, when Zalame has been rejected again by Yokana, and she sings... Your hair is hideous to these pitches. A mat of dust and rubble. Angular enough as it is, but with this accompaniment. They're very difficult pitches to find. <laughs> um, and similarly, uh, Herod's music, uh, and that lurches, as we've said, from um, saccharine Viennese um, waltz type music to he has pitches to sing which was great so severely against the prevailing harmony deliberately so when one of the Nazarenes in the music I played earlier is explaining how Jesus brought someone back to life in this beautiful hymn like music during that bar Herod has to sing what he brings the dead to life to these notes it's completely at odds with the prevailing harmony. Now, some Herods just sort of bark the roll at any old pitches, but it's much more effective if, if we do hear these pitches, and it's very hard to do, but Michael, who's singing it, does a wonderful job doing that. So, yeah, because very demanding Herod, roles. Because Herod is sort of at odds with Severely all sorts of prevailing yes. morality or yeah. anything else. He's only at home harmonically when he's singing really kitsch Viennese music, saying, <laughs> come drink wine with me. <laughs> so... Um, Daphis, I mean, as we come towards the end of this, I really I want to think about the sort of the highlights of this piece um, before we go into it this evening. I mean, what were the sort of dramatic, the defining dramatic moments in the, the actual theological source for this? Yeah, well, uh, we've already been talking about one of them. I mean, is 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 the dance, right? It's this dance that she does, and it's in in public. It's slightly more private in in the opera and the play. Uh, in in the uh, biblical story, it's in front of an awful lot of people, and that is meant to be uh, uh, shocking uh, in itself. And it's interesting with the the dance to think about. I mean, while famous, it's, it's a sort of famous stage direction, which is just Salome dances the dance of the seven veils. No one, no one knows exactly what it means. One theory is that it's related to um, this Babylonian. Uh, goddess called Isthmus, who had to abandon uh, a layer of clothing as she passed through each of the seven gates uh, to the underworld. So it's a, it's a play on the suggestion that uh, by Salome doing this dance, she's uh, shedding um, 
sort of aspects of, of a, a mistaken sense of the world to get to be more spiritual, and then also maybe understanding herself slightly more. So that puts more um, pressure on what's going on with dance. I think what's, in, I mean, I won't give anything away, do my best not to, but uh, what you'll see, I think, tonight, if I have understood it right, and I probably haven't, what's really compelling about tonight is the way that the, uh, the, the, the dance really, uh, as far as I was concerned, really goes back to the, the, this sort of sadness and grotesqueness that comes together. So this tension between beauty and sorrow that Wilde wants there to be. Because there's something very uh, very sad, very desperate, and very mistaken about uh, what's going on in the dance. So that's part, a, a, a big part of the, the uh, theological. I mean, another thing, very briefly, I don't have got time to say it, it's part, it goes back to this idea of what, what's going on with the head. I mean, you've got, so you've got a head of a prophet, you know, an important figure um, in first century uh, Palestine in this society, and a sort of sacred figure, you know, re represents all sorts of different conceptions of, of truth and, and spirituality. And you've, you, Salome there is, is really sort of invested in this head. She, she's able just to take it, right, wholly profane and uh, collapsing. What we're getting in the, one way of reading it for Wilde rather than Strauss, this would be, Strauss straying more into the atheist, atheistic side, would be that it points to movements in 19th century theology which want to talk about the fact that the, the Christian religion itself is meant to be really shocking, right? So like the story of Salome, we've got the idea here that we've got the Jews debating whether John the Baptist has, has seen God, whether ever, anyone can see God. What it, the person that he's talking about, the Son of Man, is someone that everyone's going to be able to see. You know, uh, Salome kisses the head of Yaconine. Uh, this, this historical figure is, is betrayed by a kiss. There's something very accessible about uh, that view of divinity. Uh, Thomas famously uh, plunges his, you know, wounds, hands into the, the, the wounds of, the, of the, the crucified deity. And so in the, in the context of, of, of uh, the first century and then also the 19th century, it was to point back to the fact that it wasn't meant to be a comfortable thing to be Christian, right, to have, have those sorts of beliefs. You're, you're claiming that you've, you've got a, a, a marvellous idea of God, but yet at the same time he can lower himself and be killed and crucified and all these sorts of things. So there's, I mean, while by, by making Salome Christ-like, it really is picking up on, on the sort of essential... Uh, th uh, let's take, for example, in, in, in the play and the opera, you'll see that um, one of the things that Salome gets offered, rather than the head, is the Holy of Holies. So this, this would be the curtain uh, in, in uh, the temple uh, that would divide the, the laity from the sacred objects. Um, and Wilde would have known that in the, the New Testament, this is the curtain that is, is torn in two at the point of the crucifixion. So straight away you have holy and profane uh, being mixed together. So it really is pointing towards that. I mean, Francesca, we've already heard, thank you for that, we've already heard the idea that this was a sort of a dramatic crescendo that just goes, this is a one-act opera that runs for an hour and 45 minutes and that's it, it's just sort of merciless. I mean, how does its dramatic pacing work? Is it a single dramatic crescendo? Does that, does that hold, do you think? Yes, I mean, there are a series of uh, very important events along the way that helped catalyse it, but... Um, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is there's not much of an introduction. You're, you know musically straight in the action. There's a discussion of characters who uh, are not present, Yukanan and Salome, before they arrive. And then once they arrive and she hears the voice, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a big old snowball that keeps, keeps rolling. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, the dance is this uh, central point that I think it builds up to, it happens and then it's, it's a, just a big old emotional response to that afterwards. It is pretty relentless. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, Richard, um, what should we be listening for in Strauss's score? Well, we it's an tonight? extraordinary score. Um, 
there's so much to listen to. I could just mention a couple of the themes and Please. the way Strauss uses them. For example, there, there is what is known as Zalame's theme, which in its simplest form is... And that little sinuously twisting fragment of melody is there throughout the piece. In fact, it's the one that starts the whole piece, as you mentioned, played on the clarinet with a scale-up and tremolando strings. And we're immediately plunged into a mysteriously beautiful world with a slightly sinister edge. But Strauss uses that all over the place in, in various different ways. For example, when Narabot, the captain of the guards, kills himself in a terrible frenzy of jealousy, we hear it in a very violent form. Hurtling down the orchestra like that, and we hear it in the major sometimes. It's kind of ever-present. Um, Another theme to listen out for is when we first see your canaan, there's a theme on the horns. And to me, it's a theme of sort of great nobility. It's clear that your canaan thinks he's the only figure of moral rectitude at Herod's court, possibly with some justification. Um, <laughs> And we hear that theme a lot, and even when it's varied slightly, we still recognize the same musical material. Come back to that in a moment, but there's a theme of Zalame's to mention. Um, after Yokanahan's third rejection of her advances, she sings passionately, I will have your mouth's kisses, Yokanahan, to this passionate music. which goes on and on and on. She's absolutely determined. We occasionally hear it in a quiet form. And there's a wonderful passage when Yochanan is saying to Zalame, look, what you need is Jesus. Go and find him on the Sea of Galilee, kneel down and pray for forgiveness. And Strauss combines their two themes in this way. It's almost as if for a moment they're in harmony, but only very briefly. That doesn't carry on very long. Um, I don't know if it's time, it's time to mention one other theme. Yeah, let's have one more. Um, yes, when Zalami first sees Yochanan, um, she's fascinated by him. Clearly, it's a sort of horrified kind of fascination. And she sings, he's terrible, he's terrible, but his eyes are the most ter terrible thing of, a, of all. And there's this music with a great frisson to it. So she's really fascinated. Um, that theme is often referred to as the obsession, obsession motif. And we hear that a lot, Some, and most tellingly, towards the end of the dance, in a minor key, but with a trill above it. And it's now got a really sickly edge to it. Um, and lastly, just to mention, just the first three notes of that theme is the brutal gesture with which Strauss finishes the whole opera. It's as if, well, it's telling you what will happen to you if you get too obsessed, perhaps. <laughs> So there's just a few things to listen for. 
Thank you so much, Richard. That's fantastic. Well, yes, both enchanting and appalling. Uh, that music does seem the perfect notes to end our discussion of Salome with and to release you more enchanted than appalled, I hope. Um, to, off, to go off to have something to eat and drink uh, before the performance starts at 7.30. So many thanks to our speakers tonight, to Richard for playing and entertaining us that way, to Davith and to Francesca for sharing their insights as well. And thank you, of course, to you all for coming out in the rain <laughs> to hear about Zalame. I really hope you enjoy the show. So thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>